Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to Philippians 2. Thank you, Adam, musicians and choir, Bob and Pam for sharing with us. I'm going to write a late you life that includes you as an anecdote. Uh, and just so you're not worried, it's a positive thing how you impacted a family in our church all the way back in Louisville, Kentucky. And we're so grateful for you. We're humbled that you're here at Lakeview. And this is Lottie Moon season. And I learned about the importance of the International Mission Board and International Missions from you. And we have a letter coming out this week that explains that a little bit been forever grateful for Brother Al, the pastors here, the deacons, and you, and how you have given sacrificially for so many years that the nations might be glad in Jesus Christ. And we're not taking our foot off the accelerator there. Uh, we're trusting for even greater things to come uh, through the ministry here at Lakeview. Well, if you would look with me, we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 11. We're beginning Advent season, and we realize that Advent just means appearing. And we celebrate the first appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, but recognize it's only stage one. There is a, a second Advent to come that is our hope, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul uses the Advent of Jesus to address an issue in a body, in the, in the body at Philippi. And we see how doctrine matters in this passage. So we looked at verses 1 to 4 last time, but for review, look with me in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, by way of Scripture reading this morning, prayers of the saints, our offerings to you, baptism, and singing, we have offered spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you only but through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we desire 
to offer the spiritual sacrifice of preaching, of hearing, and rightly responding to the word preached. So, Father, this morning, by your word and by the Spirit, we pray you would revive our souls, make wise the simple, rejoice our hearts, and enlighten our eyes in the mystery of the gospel. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. This past week, I, there was a headline that read, Beauty and the Lease, ex-Japanese royal moves to Hell's Kitchen. The story's about uh, Japan's Princess Mako, who has made international news with the announcement that she is foregoing her royal title and status to wed a, a working man, a working class man. Under centuries old Japanese law, anyone who does that of royalty loses their, their status. They lose their royalty, lose their wealth. Uh, she has married a commoner, to use the language. And she has for love. And as a result, she has moved in to a one-bedroom apartment in Hell's Kitchen in New York City. Of course, her decision has drawn comparisons to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's exit from the British royal family last year. But the reason this is news, in fact, it's international news, is that such a willing, sacrificial descent for the sake of love astounds us all. We instinctively ask the question, what manner of love is this? But let us not forget, any descent of a mere human is only a pale sign glory of the kind of descent that we as believers celebrate in Advent season. Indeed, we celebrate every day of the year. A, a descent that can only be parodied by anything in the creation. John Flavel, the, the great Puritan, uh, said it this way. The distance betwixt, uh, between, he said betwixt, that's not a typo. We just didn't speak as eloquently uh, as they did then. The distance betwixt the highest and lowest species of creatures is but finite distance. The angel and the worm dwell not so far apart, but for the infinite glorious creator of all things to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human understanding. Indeed, the distance between God and the world is an infinite distance. That is the distance between anything finite and anything infinite is an infinite distance. The Son of God's status before he took on flesh and blood was infinite, but he entered a finite world because of love. The incarnation, that is the Son of God putting on flesh and blood, was an infinite descent. And Paul is using that example, that supreme example, 
the Son of God's willingness to be made low for us as the supreme example that for a church to be healthy, for an individual Christian to be healthy, for any relationship we have to be healthy, we must go the way of our Lord, the Son of God. And the first thing we see, starting in verse 5, is the pinnacle from which the Son of God descended. The pinnacle from which the Son of God descended. Look with me in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, verses 5 to 11 is one sentence in the original language. Verses 1 to 4 was one sentence in the original language. And verses 5 to 11 is one sentence. So he has one thought in mind. But here we see why doctrine matters. Uh, Sometimes you'll read theology books, and it just seems to be doctrine for doctrine's sake. So people walk away wondering, why does doctrine really matter to me? Well, Paul always grounds what he says in doctrine. Uh, I heard J.L. Packer say one time that in Scripture, uh, all doctrine is grace and all ethics is gratitude. That's a simple way to look at it. But we see here, Paul is using a very important doctrine, the hypostatic union of the Son of God, to drive home a very important point. Remember, he's dealing with division. He's dealing with... Uh, conceit and selfish ambition. My general, natural way of dealing with that would be to go old 80s football coach on them. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does at all. Remember, he's admonished them in verse 27 of chapter 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or, or am absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, notice that word mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. And here in verse 5, have this mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the mind here pertains to the Son of God's infinite descent for us, which was made possible by his own attitude towards equality with God. Verse 6, Paul is saying to a church that is struggling with strife, struggling with division, struggling with selfish ambition and conceit, let what I show you about the Son of God, correct and control the way you interact with one another. Now that's an application for the church, most specifically. It's an application for every marriage. It's an application for every relationship that we have as Christians. We see this most clearly in verse six. Notice the word form. He says, who though he was in the form of God. Now, I'm going to give you this word just because I think you get the concept of this word, the way it's been used in English, morph, morphe. That is the word for form. 
Uh, it's that form which truly expresses the being which underlies it. That is, Jesus expresses fully the deity of God, the essence of God. He is equal in essence, in power, in glory with the Father, and we could say with the Spirit. And so though in the form of God, notice, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, in the incarnation, he did not account his equality with God the Father something to be used for his own advantage, which is obviously a rebuttal to what he has already said in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. It's exactly what the Son of God did. In fact, he disadvantaged himself in a couple of ways, probably more than that, but just for the sake of time. In one sense, the Son of God gave up his riches. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So though he were rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now think about just his poverty in his earthly pilgrimage. They had to borrow a place for him to be born. He had to borrow a place to live. Um, time and time again, everything that Jesus seemed to employ he had to borrow. He had to borrow a boat in which to preach. He had to borrow an animal to ride. Um, the night of the last Passover meal, the, where he transforms the last Passover meal into the first Lord's Supper, he had to borrow a room. And even after he was crucified, they had to borrow a tomb to bury him. The Son of God became poor. Most importantly, he took upon himself a debt that we could not pay. First Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He paid our sin debt in full. But secondly, he gave up the benefits of his glory. Now, he didn't give up his glory because glory is an essential attribute of the Son of God. But his glory was veiled incarnate, as we've seen in the Christmas song. It was eclipsed by his human nature. He gave up the benefits of his glory. Think about this. The one before whom the seraphim had to cover their faces. This very one descended to the realm where he, for the first time in eternity, was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Donald McLeod, in his wonderful book, The Person of Christ, says it this way. Speaking about eternity past, before he became a man, he was adored by the Father. He was worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration, and embarrassment. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction complete. His blessedness perfect. It was the way things were. And had always been. And there was no reason why they should change. But change they did. That's what we celebrate in Advent, isn't it? Of course, that thought raises questions that I have to ask myself. A question I would pose to you. How much 
do we think, how much respect and honor do we think others owe us? It, it puts our sense of importance in perspective, doesn't it? And it's that perspective which is, which is a necessary ingredient for unity. It's a necessary ingredient, ingredient for any healthy relationship that we as Christians have. That brings us to the second part of this passage, the depth to which the Son of God descended. The depth to which the Son of God descended. Notice with me in verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, emptying himself does not mean he now for the first time was no longer God. It does not mean that he emptied himself of deity. When Jesus Christ, or the Son of God, took on flesh and blood, he was still fully God, eternally generated by the Father. He was equal in essence and power and glory to the Father. This does not mean a, subtra a subtraction or a reduction of divine attributes. What it means is the addition of a human nature. The Son of God did not empty himself of divine attributes. That's important for us to remember. But in the sense of taking on the lowly status of a human servant. That is, he divested himself of position and prestige. Now, Paul uses that word form again, or morphe, again to affirm the full humanity of, of man, or, or the full humanity of Jesus. Now, it's not that Jesus exchanged the form of God for the form of a servant. That's not it at all. But it's now he manifests the form of God in the form of a servant. Again, Donald McLeod, he says, the Son of God became a slave without rights, a non-person. Now, he was a person, but he was treated as a non-person. A non-person who could not turn to those crucifying him and say, do you know who I am? How many times have we heard a celebrity get stopped for a DUI? And that celebrity says to the state trooper, do you know who I am? Well, the Son of God did not say that, even on the cross. But in verse 8, notice Paul adds, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, the cross, as we know, most of you know, was the cruelest form of punishment in the Roman world. And generally... It was relegated for slaves and terrorists, uh, for the worst of the worst. And, and generally, the, the victim was, was tortured before being fastened by nails uh, to a wooden cross. And death typically came slowly over several days as the, the criminal would, would starve and, and thirst and, and uh, would, would have tremendous blood loss and would be attacked by wild animals and then eventually suffocate. It's the worst kind of death anyone could ever envision. 
and this was for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Indeed, Paul, I am convinced, is portraying the Son of God here as Adam in reverse. Now, you think about this. His being in the form of God, but not counting equality with God, a thing to be grasped, reminds us of Adam's sin. Adam was created as the image of God, but he grasped after equality. Remember what the serpent said to Adam? He says, you will be like God. So he grasped after that. But Jesus, the Son of God, whose legitimate equality with God was always in eternity past, did not refuse to be obedient. In fact, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He did what Adam was commissioned to do, but refused to do. He served God as our federal head, as our representative, as our substitute. And the Son of God became obedient to the point of death. Think about this. Adam's disobedience brought death and sin into the world. But the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience unto death brought righteousness and life into the world. Uh, hear these words from Paul in Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, that is Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience they will be made righteous. And so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, put the redemptive need of sinners before his own interest. And Paul says, this is what true humility is. Anything else is a parody. This is true humility. In the words of Audrey Asid's song, Humble, he was not too proud to wear our skin and bear our sin. Good word. We often protest that some low position is beneath us. And the cross tells us there was nothing beneath the one who created you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Given Jesus' example, Paul is saying, none of us can ever humble ourselves too much. We can never rightly say enough, I deserve better. So I'll stop here. And he's writing to a church. If every church embraced that, there would, have, there would never be a church split in history. No, Jesus' first advent drives home to every believer here, we cannot humble ourselves too much. No one will ever humble himself or herself more than the Son of God of God. But his humiliation isn't the final word. That brings us to the final part of this passage. The exalted pinnacle, the exalted pinnacle to which the Son of God ascended. Notice with me in verse 9. Therefore, it's a very important word. If we're left in verse 8, it's bad news. 
But there's always a therefore in Paul's theology. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so therefore signals that verses 9 to 11 function as God's response to the humiliation to the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. The evangelical call is not to be like Christ. The evangelical call is to be in Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, okay? But now once one is in in Christ, by faith, through faith, we are called in the power of the Holy Spirit by that faith to follow the example of our Savior. It's not in order to gain favor. You already have it. You can't improve on your favor. You can't improve on perfect righteousness. You have it in Jesus. But now as a response of gratitude, faith, and love, you seek to be like the one who has saved you from the penalty and the power, and one day the presence of sin. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 when he says, to this you have been called, because Jesus Christ also suffered for you, notice, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his steps. Indeed, the ground of our salvation is his finished work. When Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished for every believer. It is finished. It is the ground of our salvation. But with that said, the evidence of our salvation is now our new desire in faith, hope, and love to be like Jesus. The point in the context, of course, is that no one truly humbles himself before God without being exalted by God. That's the good news here. Whether in this life or in the longer, everlasting life to come. You know, we saw this last time we were in Philippians 2. And we've all been there. If you've ever displayed any kind of humility, I think any, dis- any display of humility I've ever shown has been very broken and fractured humility. But any kind of humility that we show means that you feel like at times that you are disappearing in a culture that esteems notoriety, that esteems brand building and platform building and accomplishment. But the Apostle Paul here reminds that humility will never be forgotten by God. And yet there's a difference between our exaltation and Jesus's. Let's let's make that clear. This is seen by the verb that Paul uses here in verse 9 when he says God has highly exalted him. Um, The preposition here, hupair, above, um, it's prefixed to the root exalt. So essentially, he's highly exalted him. He has, you could say, super exalted Christ. Now, what is this exaltation? Well, The Baptist Catechism teaches us it's this, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in his ascending up to glory, 
and seating or sitting at the right hand of the Father and in coming to judge the world on the last day. That is the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, all that Jesus laid aside as a servant was restored to him and a whole lot more. Indeed, notice he bestowed on him the name. Now, did he not have the name before the incarnation? Of course he did. The Son of God is equal in power and glory and essence to the Father. And so when we read about the attributes of God in the Old Testament, we're reading about the attributes of the Son of God. When we read, when Moses says, what is your name? And he says, my name is the Lord. This is my name forever. This is the name I want to be known throughout all generations. We're reading that the Son of God's name is the Lord. So what does it mean here that he has bestowed on him a name? I think it's the same idea when Jesus, after the resurrection, said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He had that authority before the resurrection. So what does it mean that he now has this new authority? Well, he had it as the second person of the Godhead for all eternity. Now he has it as the victorious God-man. He emerged victorious for us and our salvation. That's what this is referring to. This is the saving Lord. And yet few recognize that yet. Few recognize it. That's why Lottie Moon is so very vital. We have to take the, this gospel to the nations. Few recognize it, but they will. On the last phase of his exaltation. Notice with me in verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. I mean, every single knee of every single person who has ever been born will bow. Even babies that were aborted or miscarried, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So these two verses make clear God's purposes in giving Jesus this new name as the victorious God-man. The first, every knee will bow. The second, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Now, Paul is not coming up with a new religion. Now, this is no new religion at all. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Remarkably, this is a, the fulfillment of a text that takes us all the way back to Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, the prophet Isaiah is laying out the exclusivity of Yahweh against all the, the pagan foreign gods that Israel and the surrounding nations were prone to worship. And right there in the middle of Isaiah 45, laying out the exclusivity of the Lord what, will it, what does it say in verses 22 and 23? All the ends of the earth, to me every knee shall bow. All the ends of the earth, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. And Paul applies that to Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? In a text that is laying out the exclusivity of the one God 
And Paul applies that to Jesus. Our text here answers a crucial question raised by that passage in Isaiah 45. All the ends of the earth will turn to God and be saved, but the text doesn't tell us how that will happen. We have to wait all the way to Isaiah 53 to learn how it happens. All we like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Paul is referring to when he speaks of the cross. And every believer has that as his or her heart's song and daily confession. But notice, I said every tongue. Does that mean everyone will be saved? No. No. Every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, but that does not mean everyone will be saved. Many will confess out of gladness in that day, But some, many, will confess out of compulsion. In fact, in Isaiah 45, right after that promise that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, listen to what it says in verse 24, right next to it. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. There will be many who will be incensed against him. They will have to recognize he's Lord. They will have to bow the knee, but they will do so in judgment. And there'll be universal confession, but not universal salvation. That's why uh, missions is so very vital. And it began in space and time with the son of God humbling himself. Let's close with just a, a few implications from this passage. First of all, Paul would tell us there is a way of life which bears the hallmark of divine approval. It's the way of humility. It's the mind of Christ. I think that's what he had in mind in Ephesians 4 when he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. That is the calling in Jesus. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul says it's the way of Christ, our supreme example. Second, humbling ourselves to the place of deep vulnerability. And sometimes it's very vulnerable to humble yourself. But humbling ourselves to that place for the sake of Christ will never be the final word. Look at Jesus exaltation. I think that's why Paul brings that in. In other words, the cross and the resurrection tell us you cannot humble yourself too much. You cannot humble yourself outside the provision, the promises of God. You can't humble yourself so much that you get outside the will of God. In fact, it is the will of God. In fact, have you noticed Peter in 1 Peter 5, James in James chapter 4, and Jesus in Luke uh, 14 and, and Matthew 23 all tell us these same words. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We read it five times in the New Testament, that promise. Humble yourself before the Lord and in due time, he will exalt you. Now, humility does not mean that you are seeking the praises or the honor of this world as your goal. That's not humility at all. 
Uh, In fact, the humble turn from self-grasping. That's what Paul Paul says Jesus did. And, And the aching need to promote our name, ourselves, we trust in the final reward. That's what we desire. But here's the question. How do we humble ourselves and at the same time seek exaltation? Have you ever asked that question? They seem to be antithetical to each other. How do I humble myself and yet I am seeking exaltation? Well, it all comes down to how you define exaltation. The promise of exaltation does not mean that God has now promised to restore that Babel building project that you started as a sinner. Where you are seeking to make a name for yourself. No, that's not what it means at all. What it means, he promises to vindicate you. He promises you an inheritance that far exceeds human praise and human approval. Uh, As I was thinking about a biblical example, I thought about David, who brought Mephibosheth. Remember Mephibosheth, who um, was lame in his feet and humbled because he was a grandson of the former king who had been defeated in judgment. And David brought Mephibosheth to his table. And here's what he said to him. You will always eat at my table. That's a picture, I think, of the exaltation that we are promised in Scripture. In other words, Mephibosheth, by no merit of his own, would be treated as family. He would be treated as son, a restored prince. He brought nothing to that table but humility and inability. A third implication from this passage, though, it's a warning to us all. Now, where's the warning? Well, if the Father exalts Jesus to the highest place, he'll deem any lesser honor given to the Son of God as intolerable. And and think about this. Division and self-interest reflect we are competing for Jesus' honor. We see it all the time in churches. It may be the biggest problem in churches outside of heresy is that we are competing for Jesus' honor, and he will not tolerate that. It means that we aren't low enough. It means we're not humble enough. It means we have too much altitude. Of course, this isn't to say there won't be disagreements even in a healthy church. We're not fully glorified yet, so we're going to bump into each other, and that's part of God's strategy to grow us up. But an unchecked, divisive spirit reflects unchecked, unrepentant pride, which is the antithesis of the Son of God. And hear Jesus' words from Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever exalts himself, you may win the battle you're fighting in that moment, but you lose the war. Is it worth it? Finally, Jesus' exaltation. And that exaltation includes him coming again, right? The second advent. To restore his kingdom or to set up his kingdom. 
in an earthly and physical and material way where he will judge his enemies. All of them will be brought underneath his feet. It reminds us of the limits of evangelistic opportunity. His exaltation includes his return. And when he returns, it will be not a day of opportunity. It will be a day of accounting. It will be the day when the door is shut and eternal destinies are set forever. And those who in their pride have held the Son of God at arm's length will at the same time bow the knee and they will have to confess him as Lord but in their judgment. There is a limitation to evangelistic opportunity. And so as we close this morning, for those of you who are not yet believers, who have not yet bowed the knee and confessed Jesus as Lord from the heart in repentance and faith, don't continue to resist God's only provision for sin. His only provision, the Son of God. Look at how the Son of God humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross, taking our payment, our judgment in full in our place. And in response, humble yourself and repent of your sin that you're holding on to and trust in Jesus. So as our musicians come, we want to give you that opportunity. Of course, this, remember, this passage is primarily written to Christians. This passage is written uh, to those who've already trusted Jesus, but they, they're struggling. They're struggling with um, remaining sin. And so we have to respond to this as well. This is a word to every believer. Uh, what areas of my life am I showing unrepentant pride? And it's messing up my relationships. It's messing up my relationships in my family and even in my church and in my neighborhoods. And I need to deal with that today. The Son of God communicated an infinite descent that I might be saved. The least I can do from greater to lesser is descend in humility to the one I have been sinning against. But this is also a word to every unbeliever here. Won't you humble yourself as the Son of God did and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Let's stand and sing and respond to the Word of God today. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.